what makes a great hymn. I love some of the old hymns of the faith. Matter of fact, you've probably heard me say several times about a certain song. It's one of my favorites. I got a lot of favorites. I could just go through the list. I love songs like The Solid Rock. I love how that song starts. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I love the hymn, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, where we are reminded that Jesus does all things well. I love that lyric. I love uh, the hymn at Calvary. Mercy, there was great, and grace was free. Pardon, there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. I love that song. And I could go on and on listing hymns that I love. What, what makes a great hymn? Well, the music experts would say a great hymn is one that has timeless lyrics combined with a classic melody that is singable, that people remember and love to sing. That's what makes a, a great hymn. I, I would add to that that a great hymn is one that, that informs your mind of some wonderful theological truths, but also at the same time captures your heart. It, it fans your affections for Jesus into flame. That's, that's what makes a great hymn. So this morning we're going to study, as Joey said earlier, a first century hymn. And I'm praying that God would use this hymn to, to inform our minds of some important theological truths, but that God would also use this hymn to capture our hearts, to help us to love Jesus more. So keeping that in mind, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We'll continue our study line by line, verse by verse, this wonderful New Testament book, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 15. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, living word. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The Bible says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. We just sang that. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body of the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we are, we are so grateful for your word. Your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And I pray that you would use this time to teach us your word by your spirit, that you would illuminate these truths and help us to apply these truths. I pray our lives would be changed. And God, I pray that even in the process of learning your word, you would give us a deeper 
hunger and appreciation for your word. And I pray that as we look at this great passage of scripture, the name of Jesus would be exalted. The name of Jesus would be lifted up. And that we would come to love Jesus more than when we walked in this room today. So Lord, have your way in our midst. Touch us, change us, mold us, make us into who you want us to be. For your fame, for your renown, for your glory. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The book of Colossians is is in reality a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in the first century city of Colossae, there in the Lycus River Valley, located in the general area of Asia Minor. And Paul was writing this letter in response to a report he had heard from a church planter named Epaphras. Paul was in jail in Rome, and Epaphras had come from Colossae to Rome to share with him uh, some things about this church. He'd share with Paul some things that were good and encouraging, and he'd share with Paul some concerns he had about some false teaching that had infiltrated the church. And so Paul's writing this letter in response to this report from Epaphras. He's writing to commend the good things and to address the concerns that he had. Well, in this letter, he begins to pray for them starting in verse 9. and prays some very specific things for the believers in Colossae. And then as he prays, he just gets carried away in verses 13 and 14 talking about salvation. We saw last week how Paul wrote about uh, how glorious it is to be rescued and transferred from one kingdom to another and to be set free and to be forgiven of all your sins. And Paul is just, just, just re- rejoicing in what it means to be saved. But in verse 15, Paul makes a transition. He goes from, from sharing the glories of salvation to exalting the glory of the Savior. And he uses a hymn to do that. Now again, most scholars believe this was a first century hymn. They have some reasons for believing that. One reason they believe this is a hymn is because of the repetition found in these verses. For example, look at the phrase, He is, how it's used all throughout these passages. Look in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Verse 17, He is before all things. Verse 18, He is also head of the body of the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And so scholars believe that repetition points to this being a a hymn that Christians wrote to sing and praise Jesus. Another repetition in the text is found by the phrase firstborn. Look what it says in verse 15. It says, he is the firstborn of all creation. Then in the second part of verse 18, he says, he is the firstborn from the dead. And, And most scholars believe those two phrases begin two verses of this hymn. Notice the phrase, all things. Look in verse 16. For by him all things were created. Then it says, all things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things. Look at verse 18. It says, he's also head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that he himself will come to have first place. And it's the same Greek phrase, in everything, in all things. Look what it says in verse 20. Through him, the Father wants to reconcile all things to himself. So you see, again, that repetition, which points to this being a hymn that the church used. Now, another reason they believe this was a hymn is because scholars say it has a rhythmic lilt. Now, I'm not sure what that means. But I think it means it's singable. 
that, that it was a song that, was, that would be uh, set to music. It was a very singable song. And so they look at the repetition, look at the, the rhythmic lilt of these verses and say, this was, uh, in all probability, a, an early church hymn. And this hymn has much to say about Jesus Christ. So I've got two points I want to share. We're only going to get to one point this morning. I'm going to give you both points this morning and just focus on number one. Point number one, this hymn describes the nature of Christ or who he is. The nature of Christ or who he is. Now the next time we get together in Colossians, we're going to look at the second point, which is this hymn celebrates the work of Christ or what Christ has done. So we see in this hymn the nature of Christ, who he is, the work of Christ, what he has done. In Colossians here, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. So first of all, this hymn describes the nature of Christ, who he is. And there are four things I want you to see about Jesus concerning his nature. Number one, I want you to see that he's the creator of all. The creator of all. Look what the Bible says there. In verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now, there's some misunderstanding of that phrase, the firstborn of all creation. In the fourth century, there was a Bible teacher out of Egypt named Arius, and he taught that this phrase meant that Jesus Christ was the first part of creation. In other words, God the Father created him, and he created everything else. And so Arius taught that Jesus Christ was a created being, which is heresy. A council of churches got together and said, Arius, that's wrong, that's unbiblical, that is heresy, and they condemned him as a heretic. But his teaching is still around today. There are many cults out there that teach that Jesus Christ was created. And they would look at a phrase like this and say, the firstborn of creation indicates that he was the first thing created, the first part of the created order. But that's not what that phrase means at all. So what's it mean? Well, to understand the meaning, I want to walk you through several truths related to the fact that Jesus is the creator of all. Then we'll get back to what this phrase means. First off, if you look there in your notes, Jesus is not a created being. He's not a created being. Look what it says in verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. So everything that was ever created was created by him, which would exclude him from being created. Does that make sense? So Jesus Christ was not created. He was the one that was creating everything. So he is not a created being. The Bible teaches that over and over again. As a matter of fact, Jesus pre-existed creation. Look what the Bible says there in verse 17. He is before all things. So before there was ever a Mount Everest or a Grand Canyon, before there was ever an Atlantic Ocean or an Indian Ocean, before there was ever a sun or a moon or a galaxy or a universe, before any of that came into existence, Jesus was there. And this is not the only verse that indicates this. Over in John 1, verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, God the Father, and the Word was God. You say, wait, who's the Word? Well, in John 1, 14, the Bible says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, speaking clearly of Jesus Christ. So before there was ever anything created, Jesus was there with the Father and with the Spirit. And Jesus Christ, listen, was not only there before creation, Jesus Christ has always existed. There's, there's never been a time when Jesus Christ has not existed. Jesus Christ is eternal. 
So not only is he not a part of creation, he is preexistent to creation. Which leads us to the third thought. Jesus is the instrument through whom the Father created everything. He's the instrument through whom the Father created everything. There's an interesting use of prepositions here. Look what it says in verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created. And that word by literally in the Greek language is the word in. It's, it's better translated, For in him all things were created. This speaks of his sphere of influence. In other words, creation falls under the responsibility of Jesus, the sphere of Jesus' influence. In other words, he was involved in creation. Not a part of creation, he was involved in creation. So all things created in him. And then look what it says in verse 16. For by him all things are created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities. In other words, Jesus Christ created everything. The things we see, like the sky, the moon, the ocean the prairies, the mountains, the beaches. He created all the things we see, but Jesus Christ also created things we don't see. Angels, demons, the spiritual realm. Jesus created all of that too. Look what it says in verse 16. All things have been created through Him. And so that verse teaches the the agency of Jesus in creation. He is the instrument the Father used to create everything. And again, it's not the only place the Bible teaches this. John chapter 1, verse 3, the Bible says, All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So anything that's ever come into being came into being through Him. Which means He never came into being. He was there before everything came into being. Does that make sense? I know that's confusing, but it's Bible. Hebrews 1, 2 says, In these last days... God has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. So God made the world through Jesus. Jesus is the instrument, the agency of creation. So here's what that means. All three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, were there eternally before creation happened. And all three persons of the Trinity were a part of creation. They've never heard that before, maybe some of you. But Jesus was involved in the creative act. Now, I don't know what that looked like. I don't know how that all worked out, how God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit created everything. One commentator wrote that that God the Father was like an architect. He designed uh, everything and had a purpose for everything, and then... Jesus was like a foreman. It was his wisdom and power that executed the the divine plan of the Father. And then the Spirit was the one who was directly involved with the matter, actually making things happen in the creative process. We don't know exactly what that looked like, but all three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, were involved in creation. That's a pretty awesome thought, isn't it? And the Bible says that God created everything through Jesus Christ. Now, here's what that means, coming back to that phrase, firstborn of all creation. Jesus is not a created being. He preexisted creation. He's the instrument through whom the Father created everything. Therefore, the title, firstborn of all creation, speaks of the preeminence of Christ over creation. That's what the word means, the phrase means. 
that Jesus Christ is preeminent over creation, the firstborn over creation. He is the preeminent one over the created order. Firstborn simply means of first importance or of first rank. And the Bible uses this word in that way. For example, over in Psalm 89, verse 27, when speaking of David, the Bible says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So the title firstborn meant that David was given a place of preeminence over all the other kings. It clearly means preeminence. By the way, was David the firstborn son of Jesse? Was he? No, he wasn't. He was the lastborn son of, what, seven, seven brothers? He was the last. So firstborn, when applied to David, does not mean he came first in order. It means he's preeminent over all the other kings. So firstborn, when applied to Jesus, doesn't mean he was the first part of creation. It means he is preeminent over all creation. He's the one of first importance over creation. And so Jesus is the creator of all. Last night we were out in our yard. I was doing some yard work, and Claire was outside with the kids. They were playing. And Claire noticed the sunset. The sun was going down, and we could see it rapidly sinking below the horizon, and the sky was just amazing, all the different colors. And whenever we see a sunset, we try to stop and point the kids to it. And we ask this question, who made that? And and even my little two-year-old daughter, she said last night, God. That's the answer around the Humphreys household. When we see the sunset, who made that? The correct answer is God. But last night, Caleb, my middle child, said something different. Abby said God. Caleb said Jesus. She meant God the Father. Caleb said Jesus, second person. So here's the question. Was Caleb right or wrong? Was he right or wrong? Based upon what, was he right or wrong? Right. He's exactly right. He nailed it. Jesus Christ is the instrument through whom the Father created the sunset. He is the creator of all. That is breathtaking power, is it not? Breathtaking majesty that Jesus Christ created everything, including the the billions and billions of galaxies out there and, and solar systems and stars and planets. He created it all. That's number one. Secondly, as we think about the nature of Christ, I want you to see that he's the sustainer of all. Look what the Bible says in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So not only did Jesus create everything, Jesus Christ holds it all together. He keeps it all functioning correctly. He is a sustaining God. He sustains it all. Now here's a little neat grammatical insight. The the tense verb used here in this phrase, he holds all things together, is a perfect tense verb. And the perfect tense was used to speak of a past completed act with ongoing implications and and results. So what that means is this. Jesus created everything in the past. He spoke the universe into existence. But even today, he's still working in creation. He's holding it all together. In an ongoing way, Jesus Christ is sustaining everything. So wait, how does he do that? How does Jesus hold it all together? Keep the planets rotating on their axis. 
rotating perfectly around the sun? The earth is at the perfect tilt to sustain life. How does he keep it all together? Well, look in Hebrews chapter 1 with me. Hold your place, but turn to Hebrews chapter 1. The Bible tells us. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The Bible says, He is the radiance, Jesus is the radiance of His, the Father's glory, and the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. How does Jesus hold the universe together? Listen, by the power of His word. That's amazing, because my words don't have that kind of power. I can't walk outside and say, grass grow, or weeds die. I don't have that kind of power, do you? But the Bible says that not only did the Lord create the universe by his word, by simply speaking, and the universe leapt into existence, Jesus holds it all together simply with the power of his word. Isn't that incredible? That's, our, that's where we're here to worship, the one who sustains everything, the one who holds it all together. I like what Douglas Moo writes. What holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue but a person, the resurrected Christ. Without him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. The planets would not stay in their orbits. But yet Jesus is there holding it all together. You know, one of the first songs we learned growing up is he's got the whole world in his hands. And that's a simple little song, but it is profound. He's got the whole world in his hands hands he created it all and he's holding it all together sometimes your life feels like it's spinning out of control or you look around and the world seems like it's spinning out of control listen to me jesus is in control he's on his throne he's sovereign he's calling the shots he's holding it all together you can trust him you can rest in that there's a third thing here We've seen that Jesus is the creator of all and sustainer of all, but third, he's the ruler of all. Look in verse, back in Colossians 1, verse 18. He is also head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that he himself might will come to have first place in everything. He's the ruler of everything. If he really is the creator and the sustainer, and he is, that must mean he's the one in control, and he is. He's the ruler of all. Now, this, of course, means he's the head of the church. If he's the ruler of all, he's the head of this church. Look what it says in verse 18. He is also head of the body, the church. The church here is called a body. That metaphor speaks of the fact that we're the body of Christ, and we've got to have him as our head if we're to function properly. Uh, a body can't function without a head, right? And the body of Christ will not function properly without Jesus Christ recognized and related to as the head of our church. He is the one who is in control. He is the one calling the shots. He is Lord of this church, in every church that names the name of Christ. He's the head of the church. Now listen to me. It's easy to forget that sometimes. I was listening to a preacher preach the other day. Uh, he, he's a pastor in Florida. And it was around Easter time, the, the, the sermon was around Easter time. I think it was the Sunday before Easter. 
and he was addressing something with his congregation. He said, listen, next week we'll have a lot of visitors here, and we need to be mindful of all the visitors that come for Easter. And he said, I've heard some things that concern me in this church. This is on TV, and his pastor's addressing this. The pastor said, I heard that someone came to worship here recently, and they sat down in a chair, and one of our members walked up and said, you're in my chair. The person got up, went to another seat, another member walked up to them and said, you're in my chair. And this pastor was hot. He, I mean, he, he addressed it, buddy. I'm telling you, he addressed it head on and said, listen, we're not, we're, we're not saving seats. Listen, th- 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 listen, we don't have any assigned seats in here. If a visitor comes and sits down, it's their seat. But you see, what, what really is behind that kind of attitude, you're in my seat, is a, is a forgetfulness that it's, it's not their seat. It's not their building. It's not their church. It's his church. It's his building. That seat you're sitting in, that's his seat. This pulpit is his pulpit. You know, I, I'm, the, I'm the shepherd of this church, but I'm not the chief shepherd. I, I'm the pastor, but I'm not the chief shepherd. You know who the chief shepherd is? Jesus is the chief shepherd. He's the one who is Lord of his church. It's his church. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's his. And we would do well to remember that. You see churches that are fussing and fighting and splitting? You know what's happening? Someone's forgotten it's his church. That's the problem. And so the Bible reminds us that because Jesus Christ is the creator and sustainer of all, because he shed his blood to call people out of the darkness into his marvelous light, the church, those that are saved, is his. He's the head of the church. And here's what that means for us individually. Jesus is worthy of first place in everyone's life. Look what it says in verse 18. He is also head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Again, preeminent over all those who have been resurrected, all those who will be resurrected. He's firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place or preeminence in everything. Now, I love Colossians 1.18 for many reasons. One reason is because this was the, the focal verse for the seminary where I got my master's, Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary. You see this verse everywhere. It's on the walls and the publications. It speaks of the preeminence of Christ. That in all things, he might have the preeminence. And the, the, the idea here is that Jesus is worthy, listen, of first place in your life. And God's working to make sure that everything will when the dust settles, point to the preeminence, the greatness of Christ. Kent Hughes writes, this means that he is to be first place in our families, first place in our marriages, first place in our professions, first place in our mission and ministry, first place in matters of the intellect, first place in time, first place in love, first place in conversation, first place in pleasures, first place in eating, First place in play. First place in athletics. First place in what we watch. First place in art. First place in music. First place in worship. Jesus demands first place in our lives. That's what it means. That in all things, He might come to have first place in everything. But here's the question. 
that we all need to grapple with today. Is he truly first place in our lives? Does he really have the place of pre- is he Is Jesus number one on my priority list? That's the question. Is he first place in your life? When I was in college, my priorities shifted and Jesus Christ was not number one on my priority list. And the Lord graciously took me through a period of brokenness to show me my priorities were not right. One day I was talking to my pastor. He was walking me through this time in my life. And I was talking to him about some things going on in my life. And here's what he said. I'll never forget. He said, Wade, he said, it sounds like to me you're seeking first the kingdom of Wade. Not the kingdom of God. And he quoted Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And when he said that, the Lord gripped my heart. He was exactly right. I was pursuing the kingdom of Wade. I had a lot of things on my priority list that were higher than King Jesus. But the Lord again broke me, showed me that. And when I began to follow Jesus and make him preeminent over my life, God began to, to work in my life in mighty, mighty ways. The question is, where are your priorities? I mean, honestly, I, I know you know the right answer. But God sees our hearts, doesn't he? God knows what's really going on in our lives. Who's number one in your life? Or what's number one in your life? If the answer is anything except Jesus, you need to arrange your priorities again. That in all things, he might come to have the preeminence. He's the ruler of all. That means he demands to be the ruler of your heart. And then last, I want to show you this. As we think about the nature of Jesus. He's the creator of all. He's the sustainer of all. He's the ruler of all. And then he's the point of it all. He's the point of it all. Look at the Bible says in verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. Watch this. And for him. That's astounding. The Bible just told us that the purpose for creation was to glorify Christ. It's all for him. Richard Mellick writes, Jesus is the goal of creation. Everything exists to display his glory. And ultimately, he will be glorified in his creation. Jesus Christ is the point of it all. Now, people are trying to answer these big picture questions in our society. I, you know, I went through college, I went through philosophy classes, and, and answer questions like, why are we here? What's the point of it all? What's the meaning of life? And people are trying to answer those questions. Listen to me, the Bible just answered it. Why are we here? What's the meaning of life? What's it all about? The Bible says it's all for Him. It's all about Jesus. He's the point of it all. So next time you're talking to a philosopher or reading some kind of book or article, just stop and say, wait a minute, I know the answer to this. It's all about Jesus. That's the right answer. He's the point of it all. And here's the application for our lives. If, if, if you do not celebrate, honor, and live for the glory of Christ You are missing the point of life. 
What a sad, tragic thing it would be for you to live your entire life and miss the point of it all. I heard John Piper tell a story about his father who was an evangelist. His father would travel for weeks at a time and when he'd get home he'd gather his family around the table and they'd have a dinner together and he would share with them stories about his crusades, his preaching in different churches. After one particular trip he sat his family down and, and John Piper's father's telling them the story of one particular service. He was preaching in a church and there was an elderly gentleman down on the very front row and as he preached his sermon the gentleman began to have tears well up in his eyes. And, and then tears began to stream down his face. At the end of the service, they gave an invitation. The pastor, or the preacher, walked down to the front, and this elderly gentleman walked to John Piper's father, who's preaching the revival. And here's what he said. He said, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. I've wasted it. What he was saying is he'd wasted his life. God had given him a long life on the earth and he had missed the point of it all. And he was experiencing the heartache and the pain of living a wasted life. Now God's gracious. God saved him and redeemed him. I'm grateful that salvation is by grace, not by our works. But that man came face to face with the startling reality that he had missed the point of it all. How tragic it would be for you and I to get to the end of our life and say, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. I've wasted I've missed the point of it all. It's all for him. It's all for his glory. Don't live a wasted life. Today, today, Know that it's all about Jesus. And today, begin to live for the glory of Christ. Make your life all about Him. Follow Him. Live for Him. It's all about Him. Young people, guess what? You can live for the glory of Christ right now. You don't have to wait until you're an adult. You don't have to wait until you're grown. You can live for the glory of Christ now. Don't waste your high school years. Don't waste your college years. It's all about Him, so live for Him now. The Bible solves these big picture life questions for us. What's the meaning of life? All things were created for Him. That's why we're here. And so we see that Jesus Christ is the creator of all. And Jesus Christ is the sustainer of all. And Jesus Christ is the ruler of all. And Jesus Christ is the point of it all. Oh, may he have first place in our lives as we follow him. A great hymn about a great Savior.